Well, good morning, fellowship. It's an honor to stand up here today and uh, appreciate Rob's words so much. Um, as I got here early this morning, I just walked around the campus some. And you know, it's interesting to walk around and reflect and remember. And uh, there are places I go and I just smile. You know, I just like, wow, I'm so grateful for my story and the heritage and what God taught me in days here. And there's other places I go and I kind of just tremble a little bit going, ooh, those were hard days, right? Isn't that true about all of life? You know, there's places where you go, man, that was great, that was hard. It was a treat to kind of walk around, and, and even this morning, as, as Rob was talking about that season of life that was hard, uh, I have jokingly recall, recalled that several times through the years, that that was the season when we were going through some hard things, and some of the other folks who taught were just in some difficult places, and I, was, I always say I was kind of the last man standing. You know, I was the one who showed up every Sunday morning, we opened the Bible, and believe it or not, we went through the book of Philippians back then. And so when Lloyd reached out to me a couple months ago and asked if I'd be willing to teach this morning, I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not doing a whole lot of preaching anymore. I feel like I'm kind of out, out of the routine. I'm not sure. And I said, usually when I do it, something on marriage or something on relationships, kind of the wheelhouse that I work in these days. And he said, well, Jeff, you know, we are in the book of Philippians. And, and you know, I know you taught that. So it's probably something that you have and you can do. And I don't know why, but in a moment I said, well, yeah, okay, sure. I'll, I'll be glad to do that. You know, I thought, cool. It's, it was an honor, truly. I thought, I'll do that. Y'all, I open my computer and I look and, and of like the 13 messages we did in Philippians, this is the one verse I did not preach. So <laughs> Lloyd scammed me is what he did. Anyway, but uh, it is, it is uh, an honor to get to open the Bible with you this morning. Um, the last three weeks have been pretty powerful if you've been around here. Um, hunkering down on those 11 verses. You know, we, we read them, the, the Philippians Creed and Y'all, we read them, and it just comes almost rote for us, doesn't it? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You know, we da, 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 da. But those words came alive these last three weeks. When you think back of that, Paul is saying, hey, you want to know how to live? Here's the way to live. Here's the way to find comfort. Here's the way to find encouragement. Here's the way to find compassion. Here's the... Let this mind be in you. What mind? The mind of Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, and remember Rob's song, Lore Still, and then. Lloyd's latter illustration, this, this God who became flesh, but not just any flesh, but a servant, not any servant, but an obedient servant, an obedient servant to death, not any death, but death on the cross. I mean, just this unbelievable picture of humility that God in Christ said, I love you so much, I'm gonna wreck my world to redeem and save your world. And then we came back in here last week if you were in town and, and we went to the exaltation part of it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and just a powerful moment and a time of prayer and worship and, and falling on our knees together last week. I mean, the, these 11 verses at the beginning of chapter two, they're, they're, they're kind of the big point of Philippians. May I say they're the big point of the Bible that God became flesh to redeem us, to give us a new way forward. And now Paul in verse 12 says, therefore, once again, and I love when those therefore show up. You know, they're always telling us there's something in front of it that's important. This one goes all the way back to chapter one, verse 27, where he says, that, you know, this is the way you get to live your life, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he unpacks it. And then there's this picture of Jesus. And now he's saying, therefore. As I was studying it the last few weeks, I found myself thinking the verses that I'm gonna teach from verses 12 to 18, they're kind of like something we used to do in fellowship in the early days. In the early days, back in the high school, and even some of our first few years here, at the end of every single sermon, we would always pause and we'd ask a two-word question. Anybody remember it? So yeah, there were more people in the first service even that remembered it. So, a lot of you are old like me, but so what was the question? And that question was simply this. In light of this truth from God's word this morning, so what? How does it impact you? How does it apply to you? How do you go live it out? 
I feel like that's what Paul's doing in these six verses this morning. He's saying, hey, here's the truth about Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's this example of humility. Here's how God has exalted him. So what? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to live? And Paul gets super practical in these few verses we're going to look at together. What I want to do this morning is pretty simple. I just want to walk through the six verses. I want to make some comments on them, what's going on here. Make sure that we, we all have a good cursory understanding of what Paul's really saying, as well as what he's not saying, because there's a couple places in this passage that have been really misinterpreted, and maybe in some of our backgrounds even we've been raised in. Let's, let's get it right. And then I want to take the last few minutes and just share three observations of, so what does this mean for us? How do we live and how do, how do we learn what it means to live in God's economy even more richly? Verse 12 and following, just the first two verses, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just walk through these words with me for a second. Therefore, my beloved. Uh, we already said something about therefore. He's throwing back to 127 all the way up to where we are. But don't miss those next two words, my beloved. We can fly over those so quickly. Paul is showing his heart. These are my people, he's saying. You are my people I'm writing to, my beloved. Uh, as Rob said, we were at the beach this week and we had all 14 of us there, all five grandbabies and all of my kids, their spouses. And y'all, it was just, it was, it was this time when several times I'd find myself just stepping back and looking at everybody playing or sitting around the dinner tables. And I just smile going, wow, this, these are my beloved. These are my people. And yet those aren't my only people. I, I want to be a man that lives my life with beloveds all around me. I, I want to engage with people in a way that they know that I love them and I care for them. And, and even, even those two little words right here, I think it's almost this tiny reminder, almost a sidebar from the big point Paul's going to make of going, so who are the people in your life that are your beloved? Where are the people that you're letting them know, hey, you're my beloved? Where are you leaning into some people and reminding them, I've got something I want to tell, to, tell you, but even before I tell you this rich content, I want to tell you, you matter to me. I'm connected to you. How we do life together really matters. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my present, but much more so in my absence. Always obeyed. Y'all, maybe for, for you, you were like my background. Obedience was something that you, you know was demanded in, in my background. In my family of origin, it was kind of that first time obedience before there was ever that phrase even that was popularized. And then in the church I went to, man, it was obey or else you pay. You know, it was like, it was like there's a certain way to do it and you better do it the right way. So obedience for me was this sense of going, ooh, I better, I better walk the straight and narrow or else something bad's gonna happen. Obedience was something that I wanted to be compliant with. So I had to hunker down hard and say, where is it that I need to obey now? You know, it's interesting, when Paul talks about obedience, he's never kind of taking a whip out and saying, hey, line up, get them lined up. Not at all. It's very different than that. When Paul talks about obedience, he's saying, look, the obedience is an obvious response to an overwhelming reality. It's an obvious response to an overwhelming reality and overwhelming truth. It's like electricity or gravity, right? Y'all, I obey the laws of electricity. I've been helping my son remodel his house and we've been doing some electrical work and I'm, I'm kind of dangerous doing that. So when I'm, when I'm touching a wire, even if all the breakers are off, there's still this part of me going, those two can't touch because I'm gonna obey the law of electricity. Make sense? I'll obey the law of gravity. You know, this isn't very tall, but I'm gonna obey the law and I'm not gonna jump off this morning because I'd crack an ankle or something, I guarantee you. So I wanna obey the law of gravity. It's not like, oh, I've got to go do it. It's like the reality is so obviously big that of course I'm gonna honor it. That's Paul's idea here. 
The reality, this God who became man, who died for you and me, who is exalted, seating at the right hand of the Father, obviously that reality is so big, it's so true, it's so rich, it's so lofty that of course my response would be, I want to obey. But he says, I'm noticing that you're obeying even though I'm not there. Paul's speaking in a very subtle way about their character, isn't he? You know, it's, it's one thing to obey when the, when the authority figure is in the room, right? Think about this in your families. You know, it's fun watching these five grandbabies run around. And mom and dad are around, they're pretty obedient. But you let mom and dad leave the room, how do they know so quickly, right? And it's amazing the things that got broken and moved and lost because they didn't need to obey. There was no authority there. Paul's saying, hey, even though I'm not with you, I'm in prison. That's the whole picture for Paul writing in Philippians. I'm hearing the great news that your character counts, that the way you're living, it's, it's revealed in what you do when I'm not even there watching you. I'm hearing the great report. He's celebrating, my beloved, you're doing well. I'm so proud of you. Keep obeying, keep doing what you've been called to do. And all of that is a setup for this big phrase that he's gonna use now. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's that first phrase I wanna take a minute on. Work out your own salvation. That, that phrase is not work at your salvation. It's not work for your salvation. And there are some cultures, there are some backgrounds that would take this passage right here and they'd say, see, it's really about our works. We need to do the right thing to earn salvation. The scripture is over and over, rips that to shreds, says not at all, not at all. Salvation is this free gift from God. Frequently, I'll hear people in my office and, and they'll say something in their faith journey along the lines of going, well, I just hope I'm doing enough good to make it to heaven one day. And I just wanna say, <laughs> You're probably not. None of us are. It's not about, can I do enough good? There's not a golf card. There's not a scorecard. I'm not keeping count. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's not saying, hey, get better at it. So one day, maybe, maybe just by the skin of your teeth, you can slide in. No, not at all. There's three different concepts with the word saved that show up in scripture. And I think it's worth just taking a moment to think about them because salvation has this process feel to it, right? See, we have been saved. There was a point in time when you believed, you trusted Christ. We call that justification. You've been justified. It's a legal term that says you are now declared right before God. Nothing's gonna change that. Justification happened in the past. We have been saved. We are being saved, present tense. It's this idea of we are constantly being saved. It's really the word sanctification. It's places where we're growing, where we're dying, where we're changing, where we're seeing opportunities to obey, to respond. This is the idea Paul has right here. Work out your salvation. Be serious about your sanctification. Look for places that you can partner with God, that you can grow, that you can own what needs to grow and change in your life. And then there's the future orientation. We will be saved. Glorification. Scripture talks about that back in Philippians 1.6. Paul even alludes to it that I'm confident of this, that the one who started a good work in me, the work of justification, of salvation, he will perfect it on the day he comes back. And it's a whole sense of glorification. So there's these three different concepts. Paul's talking right now about work out your salvation. Be serious about participating with God in what he's doing and that's exactly where he leads us in the next part of this passage. When he says, work it out with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. I love this paradox here. 
Paul's first thing, he says, work out your salvation. These believers, they're probably processing and thinking about, okay, work out your salvation. If they're really on it, they're going, okay, this means that, that, that I've got to be serious about the way I follow Christ. And then he says, and here's why you're gonna work it out, because God is at work in you. The last couple of weeks as I've been reading this passage over and over again, that phrase has been the biggest phrase for me, I think. And it's the phrase that I realize how little I believe it. Think about it. How much do you believe that God is at work in you this moment? That when, you, when you're watching your favorite college football team and you're seeing mustard being thrown on the field or something like that may happen, how much are you sure that God is at work in you? When you and your spouse or you and your child or you and your best friend are in some big spat and there's disagreement, you can feel the face getting red. How much are you going, hey, God's at work in me? Oh, it's so far from our mind, didn't it? And I keep going back to these first 11 verses in chapter two and I'm thinking, man, Paul, what you're saying is this God who became flesh and who died for us, he now lives in here. God is at work in me? No wonder he's saying, work out your own salvation. I think he's really saying, wake up, walk it out. Be aware that this God that we've described in Jesus, he's in you, he's working. The reason that we work out is because God works in us. Think about it, his divine power at work in us, his initiative, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his purposes being accomplished, his plans being established. Without God taking the initiative, we would not have the opportunity to work out our salvation. So Paul is saying, look, be grateful that this God is at work in you since you've been justified. Now collaborate, partner with him to work out. Putting these two phrases together, work out and know that God's working in, creates this little idea that divine initiative calls for a human response. When I'm aware that God is at work, he's initiating in me, I am left with no other option other than to obey, to acknowledge this reality and have a response to him. And Paul's saying, can I remind you, my beloved, work out your salvation. Fear and trembling of heart. Be aware that in this broken world, there's gonna be moments of fear and trembling. Paul's not afraid of that. He's going, don't forget though, in the midst of that, God is at work within you, accomplishing his good purposes. Verse 14 and 15 Paul continues, he says, so, there's no so there, but in my mind there is because I don't think it's an accident that this is what comes next. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding, holding fast to the word of life. Remember the context of this part of Philippians from verse, verses, chapter one, verse 27 through here. Paul is really describing, here's how unity in the body works. There's this big conflict in the church at Philippi. Paul's saying, come on, let's come together. Let's work through that. Let's let unity be our guide. Let's let it be our priority. So the context is unity in the body. And now he's saying, here's how we're gonna live out unity in the body in light of the fact that God is at work within us. Do nothing with grumbling or complaining. Show of hands. How many of you do great not grumbling and not complaining? Just big hands, yeah. Exactly, same as the first service, right? I, I figured it out because of the last few weeks as I've been thinking about this passage, these words, do nothing with grumbling and complaining, just keep coming in my brain over and over. Y'all, I'll tell you this. I'm really good at grumbling and complaining. That's what I've learned. As I've been preparing for this text, man, I don't care if it's the line in the grocery store, if it's the way some of you drive. I mean, whatever it is, 
I find a way to grumble and complain. Like, like my kids are calling me out on it, even at times, where I'm just, rah, 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 rah. and it's like, there's this part of me becoming this cantankerous, crusty old man that I swore I'd never become. And so I thought, that can't be what Paul's talking about, can it? And then I read it and I go, I, I, I kind of think it is. I, th- I think when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, I think it's something to do with that. Now, don't misunderstand. I think there's things that frustrate us and it's okay to talk about them. I think there's things that, that upset us and, and we want to complain. I, it's okay to do that. But is the grumbling, complaining leading toward connection or is it leading toward disconnection? Remember, the context, unity in the body. In my mind's eye, Paul, because he's going to say this in other places in the New Testament, is, is saying to him, look, y'all know what it's like to have your little small group over here and grumble and complain about everything going on or what leadership did wrong or what those people are doing stupid. Don't do it, is what he's saying. Don't live in such a way where you're grumbling and complaining. Don't live in such a way where you're, where you're, where you're unaware that there's some greater ethic of the kingdom to live by than grumbling and complaining. Y'all, is that not a timely phrase for us in this culture that we live in? You know, they will know we are Christians by our love. Many of us can quote that, that little sound bite, can't we? But the reality is, I think many people in our culture say, oh, I know they must be Christians because they grumble and complain about things. That's a terrible indictment against us at times. And unfortunately, it's true. And Paul, addressing something 2,000 plus years ago, is nailing us this morning, I think. Be aware of how you're living. Are you living your life marked by grumbling and complaining? Because he says, if you will live that way where you're not grumbling and complaining, listen, he says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That little phrase right there is interesting. Paul is calling on a little Old Testament history. Deuteronomy 32, where Moses, toward the end of his life, looking at the children of Israel, wandering in the wilderness, grumbling and complaining, man, that would be good words about them. I've always thought that's kind of comical. I mean, here they are, lost in the wilderness, 40 years, no Kroger or something like that to go to, but every morning God shows up and provides them food. And because it's not like this variety of menu, after a while they're grumbling and complaining about the food. And, and, and Moses, back in Deuteronomy 32, 5, he's saying, you are a culture, that's what you've done, you've grumbled and complained, and therefore you are a generation, and he uses that same phrase, crooked and twisted. Paul is saying, look, you know what the Israelites are, don't be like them, live a different way than how they lived. Live marked by humility, don't live marked by grumbling, complaining, crooked and twisted. You know, for those of you that like to mark stuff up, the thing I think I would mark up if I were you is in verse 15 where it says, blameless and innocent. If you circle that little phrase, those three words, blameless and innocent. And if you go down a few more words, you can circle those other two words, crooked and twisted. Crooked and twisted. It's like Paul is juxtaposing for us. Here's two different ways to live. You can live crooked and twisted or you can live blameless and innocent. Y'all, to me, it's one of those diagnostic passages. It gives me a chance to look and go, man, how am I really living my life out? Am I living in a way where, where I'm, I'm striving in obedience because of this reality of who God is and what he's doing in me to not grumble and complain so I can live with a sense of blameless and innocent like a child of God? Or do I contribute in the crooked and twisted generation components? And the why behind it all, Paul says this, here's why you're invited to live blamelessly and innocently is so you may shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Paul is always thinking of others. 
And here, as he's exhorting them on a way to live, he's going, look, y'all, if you'll live this way, those around you are gonna see something different. Matter of fact, it's gonna be like light radiating from you. Does it remind you of Jesus's words back in Matthew 5? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, you know, you're the light of the world, city set on the hill. And he goes on and he'll say that, uh, let your light so shine that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not about seeing me. It's about saying, hey, there's a way you're living, Paul would say, blamelessly and innocently, that people look and go, wow, there's something winsome. Wow, there's something good. Wow, we see the Father who is in heaven. He ends this little section by saying, holding fast to the word of life. How do you live this way? He says, you gotta hold fast to the word. Now for Paul, Paul wasn't walking around with his leather bound ESV going, hey, hold fast to this. He's in the middle of writing part of it, right? And, and, and yet he knew the word of Jesus. He knew the words of life. He's literally writing Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And he's got this image of who the word incarnate Jesus is. And he said, hold fast, hold on. The idea there is hunker down and grab tight with all you've got. He'll use this same idea in chapter three in a few weeks, we'll see it come up again to hold fast, to hold on. That that's how we live this way that we're being invited to live. So why live this way? So that we can be agents of hope in a crooked, in a twisted, some translations say a perverse generation. Hold fast to the truth of God's word. And then finally, the last part of this, this chapter, these verses we're looking at this morning, so that in the day of Christ, I may be poured, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Again, words you can just read over so quickly. But the very end of it is a command. Paul's command is this. There's three commands in this passage. And the third one is this one. Be glad and rejoice with me. That sounds kind of good, right? Like, like if before it said, hey, I'm throwing a huge party and there's all the food and drink you want and it's gonna be incredible. Be glad and rejoice with me. We'd be like, count me in, I'm there. But what Paul is saying before that starts with those words, even if. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What does that phrase mean? In the Old Testament, we, the Israelites would offer precious items, many times animals, as an offering to God. Sometimes for repentance, sometimes for worship. But there's a chance to bring this, this, uh, this animal and lay it down before God. And then there would be something we poured over it, often wine, but think gasoline, something that would ignite it, something that's gonna burn it up, that's, that's gonna allow this offering to be devoured up in flames. And Paul is saying this, saying, look, I want you to understand that, that I'm, not, I'm not the sacrifice. I, I, your service, your work, the way you're living, if you live the way I'm talking to you about, it's a beautiful sacrificial offering to God. My life, it can just be poured out, just, just as a libation, just, just as wine over the top of it. Just, I want you to know, I'm gonna rejoice. Can, can I say it more bluntly? Paul's saying this, hey, even if I get killed and die, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Even my life is poured out. Even if there's nothing left of me, I rejoice. And likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me because I died. Does that sound right? Paul has this perspective that's so much bigger than the way we live, I think, sometimes. Earlier in Philippians chapter one, he said this, for me to live is Christ, but to die, well, that's even better. He said, it's gain. It's even better to live this way. 
For Paul, Paul is living with an eternal perspective. He's living in a way that says uh, that, that there is a deliberate way of trusting Christ in every situation. It's that sense of going, if God, if Jesus is really living inside of me, then no matter what the situation comes, I'm gonna rejoice and be glad. And may I invite you, rejoice and be glad with me, Paul says. Y'all, these are heavyweight words he's offering us. It's a different way of living than how I normally live and perhaps you normally live. So, so, so how do we live in light of these verses right here? I'm calling them the so what verses to the first 11 verses of chapter two. I, I, I wanna just offer you three quick thoughts. And they really come out of the, the privilege I have of, of doing the kind of work I get to do. As Rob said at the beginning, I, I do a lot of life and executive coaching and I do some counseling and I just walk with people in the midst of all sorts of situations. And y'all, I feel like I have the best job in the world. I get this chance to show up and walk with people who often come in my office in difficult places. As a matter of fact, no one comes in my office just to report, hey, things are going great. I thought I'd just pay you to spend an hour with you. You know, nobody does that. They show up because the wheels are starting to come off the wagon somewhere and there's a need to process. And I get front row seats to watching this God who is at work in them start doing something in their lives. We lived in Chicago for a number of years and it was during the Michael Jordan Bulls era and, and I had a good friend who had great seats all over the stadium and he would take me to game after game after game. And y'all, I've sat in the nosebleeds, but I've also sat literally front row under the basket for a game. I've sat second row right behind Michael Jordan, took everything in me not to reach out and just touch the hem of his garment. I mean, it was just like, it was incredible, you know? I mean, sorry, sorry. Uh, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> it, it was awesome, you know? And, and, and when you sit that close and you watch these men playing basketball and you see their bodies pounding against each other and you see how fast the game is and, and you see just how quick they can turn on a dime. I mean, you're just like, if you're a basketball fan, you're going, goodness, wow, it's unbelievable watching it. That's the way I feel sitting in my office with people who show up and I sit back and I just go, I wonder what God's gonna do now. Wow, watch him move. And this passage it's so instructive to what I see happen. And I think what we all wanna have happen in our stories and in our journeys when we get stuck. Just three thoughts. I see a lot of people show up in my office who are struggling with their faith. Man, faith is a very common thing to be struggling with right now. And I'm not sure it's really faith as much as it's some form of abuse from heavy religiosity. Man, we're in the South and there's still a lot of that. People from certain denominational backgrounds that are, are beginning to understand grace and they're going, wait a minute, but, but wait, I know there's supposed to be grace, but don't I have to jump through these hoops? And, and what if I haven't done this? And, and so I get the chance to talk with people about their faith. And, and it's interesting because if, if I used Paul's words, I think I could just look at them and say, hey, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling of heart because God's at work in you right now, even as you're confused about some part of your faith journey. See, unfortunately, what happens, a lot of people, by the time they get to my office, they're there and they're really angry with the local church or, or they're angry with God. And they're in a place where they're, they're, they're going through this thing. It's kind of the new buzzword the last three or four years. They're deconstructing their faith. You heard the phrase? They're in a the process of deconstructing. And, and, and deconstruction, honestly, I think can have a place. I think it's part of growing older, honestly. I, I think that's how the, the wisdom literature is written, that there's, we start off in this place of orientation, life makes sense, the Proverbs, you know, and then we go a place of disorientation where, man, Ecclesiastes, nothing seems to make sense. And, and then part of what the gospel does is it brings it back to a place of reorientation where we begin to go, oh yeah, God is at work in me. There's something good he can do in so just the word deconstruction doesn't bother me. But what I see with deconstruction is this one phrase in Paul's uh, in, in chapter two here in Philippians, work out your own salvation, becomes unbelievably 
misinterpreted, misapplied. I see this way too often. Well, I'm gonna work out my salvation, but you know what? This part right here, nah, that don't work for me. And this part right over here, uh, don't like that part. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking that Jesus is this kinder, gentler, and it's okay, and it doesn't matter, and he understands. Sounds good. I wish we could create God in our own image that way. But that's not what the scripture gives us a freedom to do. That's certainly not what Paul's doing right here. Paul's saying, when you're in a crisis of faith, when you're wrestling, Paul's saying, lean in. Of course, wrestle. Just like Jesus said to Thomas, man, if you're a doubter, I don't care. Just lean in, touch me, be willing to explore the truth of who I am. But in doing so, know that you hold tight to the word of life and work out your own salvation. I see a lot of people who are battling with their faith. And can I say, as a fellow struggler, I think it's a great place to battle. But you better know your lane lines. And Paul's inviting us to work out your own salvation knowing this, God is at work within you. Hold fast to his word in the deepest of struggles. I think the second group of people, the second issue I see often are relational issues in my office. People are coming in and, and they're stuck. And just like Paul's talking about, about unity in the body, when he says, don't complain and dispute, don't grumble and complain, I, I, I see those that often show up with marriages or with friendships or family members. And there's just this sense of complaining, grumbling, disputing. Y'all, it, it becomes like a pandemic, right? I, I see it in marriages where they come in and, and, and within five minutes, somebody's red face and the other one's shut down. Or, or I've seen in my own marriage. It's not like I'm Mr. Perfect over here. I know what it's like to hear Laura say one thing and tell myself a very different story and begin just going, oh, she's so wrong. I can't believe she doesn't love me. She doesn't care about me. And man, I'm off to the races. And so what does that lead me to? To confronting her by grumbling and complaining and, and creating discord and discontent. And, and, and what, what I think about when I'm sitting with those people is I'm thinking, sometimes I think I need to remember these words that don't complain and dispute from Paul are really an invitation to bring hope in whatever situation you find in. What does it mean to pause and stop in the midst of a difficult time and realize, wait a minute, this is an opportunity I have just as much as grumbling and complaining, I can be blameless and innocent. I can lean in with compassion and care. Paul's gonna invite us throughout Philippians multiple times that the way we live really matters. And y'all, that plays out in the practical day-to-day, -day, not just on Sunday morning during the 30 minutes that we spend together opening the Bible. And then finally, in addition to people battling with their faith and relationships, a lot of people that I get the chance to spend time with are battling with trying to figure out a perspective of how do they navigate something that's happened. I have several clients right now who have recently gone through divorces. Divorces they didn't want, and yet divorces that happened. And they're trying to figure out, well, how, what does this mean about me? Where am I broken? Where am I defective? What's messed up with me? Or I'll have others who will show up and they've recently lost a loved one and they're trying to get their legs back and say, man, how do we move forward? This was a, a parent or, or a sibling or, or in some situations a child. How, 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 do, how do I move forward? I, I've lost my bearings. I, I need a different perspective in how I live. And while I would never say it this way, I think Paul's words are applicable. Hey, rejoice. Wouldn't that sound rude? Wouldn't that sound wrong? It's not the first card you play but it's the ultimate card you get to. And the first card is a card of compassion. It's the reality of this is hard. The reality of this is painful. Yes, there's emotion. Yes, there's sadness. There's fear. There's shame. There's anger. All sorts of stuff is going on. And yet ultimately, 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 rejoice. Rejoice. See, I think this last part of the passage we looked at this morning is about 
an eternal perspective. That if all my perspective is, 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 is horizontal, what I can look, see, feel, touch, taste here in this world, y'all, joy is gonna be hard to find. But when I can have a perspective that transcends this world, when I can have a perspective that knows that God in Christ is doing something. I mean, listen to some of Paul's other words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Greater is he who is in you, Jesus said, than he who is in the world. Even in the midst of facing death, loss, suffering, there is a joy set before. And Paul says, how do we learn to embrace an eternal perspective in the midst of anything we're going to? I saw an example of it this past week that honestly, y'all, when I first read it, I thought this, this can't be true. And yet I know this person, I know this person well, and I know it's the truth. And, and I think what they've done, though they may not have literally been reading Philippians 2, 12 through 18, they've taken the principles from those six verses and they are living it in the midst of one of the most difficult, trying seasons of their life they can imagine. Uh, a lady, her name is Kara, wrote a little blog post. And Kara lost her husband seven, eight days ago. Her husband lost a battle to COVID. Young man in his 40s, three sons, great guy, sound engineer by training. They used to attend church here back when I was here and just precious people. And people were praying for him. They were standing in the parking lot at the hospital. They were going all over the place, just praying God heal, God deliver, God do something. And then he passed away. It's tragic, sad, you know, those, those, those deaths that make no sense. And Kara posted these words and I just think they illustrate this ultimate principle of how do we live life knowing that there's a joy bigger than the worst moments of our life. May I read it to you? Sweet friends, please forgive me for waiting a few days to post. I know how hard you all have been praying. Friday night, October 8th at 9.38 p.m., Charlie, the love of my left, life, left this earth and stepped into heaven. I had prayed and asked God that very day that if he knew this was Charlie's time, please do not wait. And God in his mercy answered my prayer. The first time I read that, I thought, wow, wait, were you praying that your husband would, what, what? And I kept reading, which leads me to this. The prayers that you prayed for Charlie were not in vain. I know that many of you are saying, what was that? I've prayed like I've never prayed before. I believed for healing. I was up in the middle of the night to pray for Charlie. I, I cried, I pled, I had faith, I fasted, I begged for healing. Why, why, why? Right on the edge of grumbling and complaining, right? And she says, can I tell you why? Because maybe it was never really about Charlie's healing on earth. Maybe God chose Charlie to bring us into the deepest communion some of us have ever had with God. God wanted us to pray. He wanted us to weep and pound the table, but not just for Charlie's benefit, but ultimately for ours. Do you hear perspective starting to turn? Because God not only loves Charlie, but he loves all of you just as much. He wanted relationship with some of you that nothing else may have caused. Charlie was a sound engineer, a bridge builder, a connector. People talked, sang, and made sounds, and Charlie skillfully amplified it. He loved that the world was created by sound and that when God spoke, the world came into being and everything in it. I think that as Charlie laid in that hospital, you were all lifting up the sounds of prayer. Charlie was still running sound from his hospital bed. What a different perspective. God used him to amplify your prayers in the greatest and last production of Charlie's earthly existence. And then she gets real. I will miss him with a fierce pain in my heart until I see him again in heaven. 
See, having the eternal perspective doesn't keep us from profound sadness. It doesn't keep us from deep fear, uncertainty about how the boys are gonna turn out. But it leads us to a place of going, I believe that you're up to something in the midst of the greatest of chaos. But I am assured that this was exactly God's purpose. So, she sounds very Paul at the end. Do not lose heart or faith, but remember how much Jesus loves and adores you. Maybe this week, maybe this week there's some place that you, and I think I'll have to continue doing this, will need to look at a place of grumbling or disagreement in your life. Some place where it's easy to talk about how hard things are. And y'all, they are hard. Life is difficult. Life is messy. But maybe there's a place where we need to pause and consider that God is asking us to trust him and he's inviting us to choose joy. That's the invitation to joy for this week. Where is that place of disappointment, of grumbling, of hurt, of pain, of sorrow, of uncertainty, of fear? Y'all, it's real. Tend to it. Be attentive to it. But where is God asking you to trust him? That there's some big smile on his face going, I haven't forgotten you. I got this. I'm at work. I'm working in you for my pleasure, for my good will and my good work to be accomplished. And where is he inviting you to choose joy? Would you courageously consider that this week? Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for your word that is powerful, your word that is encouraging, and sometimes your word that's disconcerting because it challenges us. It forces us to look. Thank you for this passage, even that reminds us to ponder how aware are we, oh God, that you are at work in us, not just around us, but that you are at work in us. Lord, open my eyes, open our eyes to see the places that you are working to will and to work your good pleasure. Father, grow us that, that our perspective is so eternal that we are so confident in you being at work that grumbling and complaining begins to dissipate a little bit around us. That we live with a sense of blamelessness and innocence that we're trusting you, God, as your children. And Lord, may our lives then radiate light to bring hope in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. For some of us this week, may we be encouraged to hold fast the word of life even closer, tighter, more deeply. And in doing that, Father, may we trust that you want to bring joy in every part of our lives. Father, thank you that your word is rich and may we respond to it with hearts of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.